it's important when we have an opportunity that we act. And I want to talk about that for just a moment as you're turning to Matthew chapter 9. When we have the opportunity and the door opens, we've got to act. It reminds me of a tombstone I heard about back a while ago that was inscribed with just these simple words, I told you I was sick. <laughs> they didn't act. We've got a marvelous open door in Indiantown, Florida. Uh, we're going to have an information meeting uh, after the service in the fellowship hall about a summer mission trip to Indiantown, Florida that I hope all of you will be a part of. And there I'll share a little bit more about uh, the vision that's uh, on my heart when it comes to our missions ministries. But uh, we've got an opportunity to act. And I want to answer, ask and answer real quickly a few questions about this mission trip to Indiantown, Florida. Um, what are we going to do? We're going to do vacation Bible school in the morning, uh, soccer and sports camps in the afternoon, some helping hands ministry, some small projects where there's the need for some help. Uh, car care as well, some basic maintenance on vehicles. Uh, we're going to do uh, some evangelism while there as well, door-to-door -door and a tent crusade with the translator Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday night. And uh, we'll do some, uh, uh, some prayer walking as well. Uh, there's a great need for every talent and every ability that we have represented in our congregation there. Uh, and I want to challenge you one way or the other to be involved somehow, some way. Some of you will not be able to go. Physically, you're going to have to be able to stand the Florida heat and, and some other things, long days. But um, some of you won't be able to go. There'll be some things that you can do here at Beach Haven while we are there. We'll make that available. Uh, who is the next question? Well, this is a church-wide mission trip. Uh, we anticipate children and students and college students and young, middle, and senior adults participating. And we're going to Indian Town. Uh, in an effort to reach that uh, area, to partner with a couple of churches there to reach that area, uh, Anglos and Hispanics predominantly, Hispanics especially, 85% of the population, and most of those are Guatemalans, and about 900 of those are what the International Mission Board call an unreached, unengaged people group called the Conjobal, and we've got an opportunity to reach them. Well, how? How am I to do this? Well, if you're going to go, we need you to today meet with us after the service uh, in our information meeting where you have the opportunity to sign up for one of our teams that I just spoke of. If you're going to stay, then you can give. We've already had some folks that are not able to go that are going to give to cover and scholarship some. Uh, $250 per adult, $75 uh, from 6th um, uh, grade to college students, and $50 uh, for elementary school children K through 5. And uh, if you're not able to go, you can give. You can also pray. Uh, when is another question. Well, a deposit is due March the 1st. Uh, we'll do tentatively. We've got training scheduled for May the 1st. And then the trip will be June 24th through July 1st. Well, the final question is why? Well, that's why we're looking at Matthew chapter 9, our text uh, this morning. Here, Jesus is in a hostile context. There are many that don't want him around. And nevertheless, here he did what no one else could do. And beginning in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 to 38, Jesus did what no one else can do. Now there are three human experiences for which the world religions and the alternative philosophies of the world have no answer like Jesus does. Three experiences in human life. One is sin. 
How do I deal with the corruption of my own heart? How do I have victory over that? How do I grow in goodness? How do I grow in justice and mercy? How do I grow in kindness? None of the alternative philosophies of the world and none of the alternative religions of the world have an adequate answer for that. It's not that they don't attempt to answer. It's that it's profoundly inadequate. The second is human sorrow. How am I to make sense of the tears that cascade down my face? How am I to make sense of reversals? How am I to make sense of tragedies? And then third, death. Death. What am I to make of death? How am I to prepare for it? How can I have some assurance in this life and more important in the next life when it comes to death? The world religions and alternative philosophies of the world do not have adequate answers and yet all three of these appear in this text. And Jesus adequately addresses each and every one of them. And we stand flat-footed broad-shouldered, with all humility, but great abounding confidence, we believe Jesus Christ is enough for every human experience. And that's what we're looking at today. There is none like Him. He is enough. Now, why say this? Well, first, He is competent enough. Beginning in verse 18. While He spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped Him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well, and the woman was made well from that hour. Now, Mark and Luke record this story as well, and Mark and Luke both say that she had been to physicians and was made no better but worse, and Mark says that she uh, expended all that she had on all the possible remedies to help her with this hemorrhage, this flow of blood that she lived with for 12 years. It kept her excluded from the temple. It kept her excluded from social relationships, lest they become contaminated. And this woman then spent all that she had. She went through all of the 11 prescriptions for healing of this that Jewish writings included. She had tried everything, and after 12 years of effort, she was not better. She was actually worse But she meets Jesus, and she is healed. No one else could take care of her, but merely a touch at the hem of Jesus' garment was sufficient to render the power of God and to heal this woman that had been miserable for so long. You know something? Everyone gets to the point where they've got to turn to Jesus. Everyone gets to the point where the drugs are no longer enough. Everyone gets to the point where alcohol is no longer enough. Everyone gets to the point where another romantic relationship simply is not enough. Everyone gets to the point where an education and a good business or a good job are simply not enough. And they arrive at the very point where this woman was. All of these things cease working. And they only work temporarily to begin with. And many of them created other problems. And they added shame upon shame upon shame, which made it more necessary 
for more of these measures. Eventually, everyone gets to the point where they have got to turn to Jesus. And every time they do, on His terms, they find that He is competent. Now, folks, I've been listening to people's stories, and I've been listening to their testimonies for a long time. I've heard of people that were saved in a Christian home. I heard people that have been saved in a rescue mission. I've heard of people that came to Christ on a hospital bed and God raised them up. Some he didn't. I've heard of people give their story here, there, and yon. I've helped them to compose them. And only one regret has ever surfaced from anyone that I've ever spoken to about giving their hearts and lives to Christ. Just one regret. Only one regret. Now, you can't say that about vehicles. You can't say that about purchases. Some people can't even say that about a marriage. One regret, and that is they didn't do it earlier. That is the only regret I've ever heard of anybody who came to the competent Jesus and trusted Him. And today, in fact, you're going to have the opportunity to trust Him. At the end of the message, we'll invite you to turn to Christ and give you the opportunity and give you the help that you need in coming to Jesus Christ, just like this woman did. So Jesus is competent enough for Athens and the Athens region. Jesus is competent enough for women. Jesus is competent enough for the sick. Jesus is competent enough for Indian Town, Florida. And Jesus is competent enough for the world. And there's enough competence in Him today in this very room where those who are struggling and have been struggling for years can find remedy, help, hope, and healing in Him. He is competent enough. But then, that's not all. He's also strong enough. Look with me in verse 23. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, He said to them, uh, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed Him. But when the crowd was put outside, He went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all of the land. Now, oftentimes, and usually in Jewish homes, when there was a death, they would go through some uh, particular customs. And one was they would tear their garments. And there were certain prescriptions and customs for tearing your garment. And, and then they would hire some flute players. And they would play. And sometimes they'd play low and slow and sad and mournful. And sometimes they would play with a shrill that would resemble weeping and wailing. And then the third thing that they would do is that they would hire professional mourners, uh, one or two, or sometimes five, and sometimes five and ten. And, and they would come to the home there, and they would be hired, and they would wail out loud so the whole neighborhood and the whole community knew that there had been a death in the home. And that wailing and the flute playing and the tearing and rending of the garment would uh, expand the circle of people that are wailing. And this is the scene that Jesus comes into. One commentator calls this pathetic pandemonium is what's taking place here. It's pitiful. It's pathetic. A little girl has died. And Mark and Luke say that she also was 12 years old. This little girl was born about the time this woman began her hemorrhaging. And so Jesus comes upon this scene and despite the, this man's power in his religious practice, he still needed Jesus. Now, you see, back up in verse number 18, he's called a ruler. Uh, Mark and Luke say that he's Jairus. And Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. He's one of the more prominent men in the city. He's got power. 
He is the administrator over synagogue worship. He has a lot of influence over the religious life of the area. He was qualified, according to the Pharisees, to hold this position. And despite his power, and despite his rigid religious observance, he could not convince death to bypass his 12-year-old daughter. He couldn't keep it away. It visits the home. But look what happens in verse number 24 when Jesus comes upon this pathetic pandemonium. Look what he says. Now, she's dead. She's just as dead as she can be. Look, verse number 24. Here's what he says. Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Listen, friend. Jesus is so strong, he treated death as if it were nothing more than a nap. And that's the power that Jesus Christ has. I've got to tell you, it's my glad joy, even in the midst of sorrow and mourning, Anytime I do a funeral for a follower of Christ, I can stand with certainty at that grave and declare to the family that that grave does not get the last word Jesus does. Jesus will treat all the dead when He returns to raise them from the dead. It will be no more difficult for Him to raise the dead as it is to awaken someone from a nap. That is how strong Jesus is. And there is strength enough in this room Strength enough in this room for every dead life, for every dead walk with God, for every dead marriage and every dead family. There's enough strength in Him to resurrect it all. There is enough strength in Him to resurrect a dead Athens, a dead Indian town, Florida, and a dead world. Jesus Christ is enough. He's competent enough. He is strong enough, but that's not all. He is merciful enough. In verse 27, it says here, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus ends up healing them. He asked them, do you believe I can do this? And they say, yes, Lord, and they regain their sight. Now, is it not a remarkable thing that in spite of the criticism that we'll look at in just a moment here in this text of Jesus, where some could not see who Jesus was, these two blind men see that he's the son of David. And by calling him the son of David, they connect him, of course, to King David and say, you are in the royal line. You're in the line of descendants of the throne of David. You have a rightful claim to the throne of Israel, which the Jews understood would eventually be the throne of the world, and that God himself would occupy that throne through a son of David. So Jesus comes here, and he sees these two blind men, and blindness often led to destitution. And it was very common, by the way. Uh, they didn't have as much appreciation, at least some people, of hygiene as we do. Sometimes there were four, uh, swarms of flies that carried a variety of parasites and diseases that could blind a person. There were all kinds of reasons to go blind. But Jesus meets these men, and he heals them of their blindness. Now, because of blindness, they would grow destitute. If you can't see, you can't work. And so oftentimes they were led to begging. Jesus here has enough mercy to rebuild those who have nothing. In fact, I'll go so far to say to you, it is impossible to come to Jesus Christ on His terms and leave the way that you first came. It's impossible to come to Jesus with humility and repentance and a broken heart and surrender, forsaking sin 
It's impossible to come to him on those terms and Jesus Christ not intervene. It simply does not happen. Uh, J.C. Penney is one person you're probably familiar with. He tried a number of business ventures well into his mid-50s and failed and had a mental breakdown and was committed to a hospital in his mid-50s. He got out after a while later. He got himself right with God and began to follow the Lord, and he became very interested in giving his wealth away. He gave to his church and Christian organizations. He lived into his 90s, and from his mid-50s to his 90s, his income and influence grew to the point where at the end of his life, he was living on 10% of his income and giving away 90% after going bankrupt in his mid-50s. Friends, there is enough mercy here. There's enough mercy here in the Son of God to intervene and meet your need. Jesus has enough mercy for Athens. Jesus has enough mercy for the suffering. Jesus has enough mercy for Indian Town, Florida. Jesus has enough mercy for the world. But that's not all. He is also resolved enough. Now look at verse 32 through 34. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. That means he can't speak. A demon had silenced him. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And watch this, two reactions here. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Now that's absolutely nonsense. Satan's not going to divide his kingdom by giving someone power to divide his kingdom. He's not going to divide his kingdom at all. And so here you've got two very different reactions. Hey, that's a theme here in uh, Matthew chapter 9. Uh, back in verse number 3 of Matthew 9, look what he's accused of there in verse 3. He forgave someone as if he were God because he was. And the scribes respond, this man blasphemes. And then look at verse 11. Look what he's accused of there. He's accused of blasphemy there. Verse 11, he's accused of immorality. When the Pharisees saw him with the tax, tax collectors and sinners... They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? No, no respectable rabbi in their world would do that. And then look what he's accused of in verse number 14. Then the disciples of John, very good people by the way, the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often but your disciples do not fast? So Jesus apparently is undisciplined and unruly, they think. Now, don't any of you get any ideas, but not verse number 24. He said to them, make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they ridiculed him. Here they think he's irrational. And then, in verse number, verse number 34, they thought he was demonic. You see, in the midst of the greatest works ever done, and the most beautiful and sweetest words ever spoken, Jesus is criticized and he's criticized harshly. You know, there's some people that are waiting for everyone to agree with them and approve of them before they tell someone else about Jesus. Can I tell you a little something? That day will never come. If you're waiting for the perfect opportunity to share the good news of Christ, it will never come. It simply doesn't ever come. And for Jesus, that was not necessary. He has got here in this text... Five different charges 
ranging from blasphemy to immorality to demon possession. And he is resolved enough to share the good news anyway. Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, American Puritan pastor and theologian, wrote 70 resolutions to which he was resolved in his walk with God. And he said, resolution number one, I will live for God. Resolution number two, if no one else does, I still will. He was resolved to do all the will of God. Now, my question is this. After all Jesus has done, what else must he do to loosen the lips of his people in the world? The question then is not, how can I tell the world about Jesus? The question is, how can I ever be silent after all that he's done? There is enough worth in Jesus Christ to burst open every mouth throughout the world in Athens, the world, Indian Town, Florida, and anywhere you find a breathing human being. Jesus is resolved enough. But there, there's a fifth item here of which he's adequate, and there is enough. Verse 35 through verse 38. Read there with me. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes... Now stop there for just a moment. When you see a great and vast crowd, what is your reaction? Many people are awed by a great crowd. Many people are excited by a great crowd. Many are moved by a great crowd. When a great crowd gathers, there's something that's going to happen. Well, look what happened to Jesus. In verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. They're confused. Uh, they have lost their defense mechanisms with sheep. Their primary defense mechanism, there aren't many with sheep, but their primary defense mechanism is to huddle together, to herd together, and they move as a body together, and that is about the only form of protection they have absent the shepherd and the sheepdog. And so they are defenseless, they're confused, they're like sheep having no shepherd. And then Jesus changes the metaphor here in verse 37. He said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. Now this is what moved him with compassion. He wasn't necessarily excited by the crowd and the multitude. He wasn't necessarily impressed. Instead, he was moved with compassion. And here's why he had compassion. Because the harvest, speaking of non-Christians as a potential harvest, the harvest is, and to hear most people today say it, almost non-existent. There are some that would say that the world is so hard and the world is so anti-Christian. And the world is so difficult. There's no way in the world we could win anyone in the world, especially our local area. Hey, folks, Jesus has just gone through five charges of criticism. Everything from, uh, everything from uh, blasphemy uh, to immorality to being undisciplined to being irrational and to being demonic. And yet he still looks proportionately at the rest of the world and in verse 37 says the harvest truly is plentiful even in the midst of this difficulty he still saw the multitudes and he said they are plentiful the problem with Jesus was never the world it's not as if the whole world was making these five charges against him no proportionately and the balance is 
the vast majority of people were an opportunity for harvest. But you know, oftentimes the criticism gets more of our attention than the opportunity. I remember when I was a centrifuge camp pastor many years ago, I uh, had an evaluation that was done on me. I had 6,000 evaluations done on me during that summer. We had 6 million campers and their chaperones or their adult sponsors. And I got one negative evaluation. And that's the only one I remember in four summers as a camp pastor. I don't remember. In fact, if I think about it too much, I will swim in it. And I'll obsess over it. So that summer, 6,000 campers, one negative evaluation, 5,999 positive ones, and I don't remember a one. Can I say to you, you're going to be very negative about the world if you pay more attention to cable news and news sites than you do the Bible. You will. I've almost had to turn it off. I like being informed, but it doesn't really help my walk with God very much. Jesus never complained about the harvest. Jesus never complained about the world. He looked at the lost world, the non-Christian world, and he said, I'm profoundly, deeply, genuinely, sincerely optimistic The harvest truly is plentiful. The problem is not the harvest. Look what he said in verse 37. And he puts his finger on the problem here. Look. He said, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's where the problem is. Ladies and gentlemen, I am convinced, and I've seen this over and over again, non-Christians in our world are more willing to give themselves to Jesus than Christian people are to tell them. Jesus never complained about the world. He was optimistic. He was more concerned about the work ethic of his people. That reminds me of something that Howard Ramsey said. He directed evangelism in the Northwest in Oregon and Washington State. He wrote Continuous Witness Training, what we used to call CWT, an effective and powerful soul winner. And he is now retired at a Baptist home over in Palmetto. But he said this one time in one conference, I heard him speak at. He said, the number of people who come to Jesus is in direct proportion to the number of people we tell about Jesus. Well, imagine that. That's remarkable. But after all of his experience and all that he had witnessed and the pastors he consulted with and trained, the number of people that come to Jesus is in direct proportion to the number of people we tell about Jesus. Do you know why baptistries grow dry? You know why some people don't respond to the invitation? Oftentimes you've got a congregation that's not telling people about Jesus. But if we ramp that up, if we begin to view the world like Jesus does and believe that God is working with the world, ladies and gentlemen, that makes all the difference and we see people come to Christ. Now, how do I get in then on Jesus' adequacy? Well, it's obvious you don't have to have a certain status. Because in this text, you've got a powerful, local, elevated ruler of a synagogue, and then you've got a destitute, blind man. And they both get in on Jesus. Well, it's not your status. It's not your performance. Uh, You've got a man here who's mute, demon-possessed. That's not a very admirable performance. And then you've got a woman who cannot get anywhere near a synagogue or another Jew because she's got this 12-year-old hemorrhage. And it's certainly not your ability, 
Because a dead girl gets in on Jesus' adequacy. There's just one thing. Look with me in verse number 22. To the woman, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Look at verse 28. To the blind man. Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. Now look at the profession of faith back in chapter uh, 9, verse 18. The ruler came and worshipped Jesus, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and I hope she lives. No. She will live. He's stating his faith. Listen, it's not your status. You don't have to be the uppermost or the guttermost. You can be there or anywhere in between. It, it's not your performance. You may not be able to do anything for Him. It, it's not your ability. Jesus is able to raise even the dead. You see, it's not status. It's not performance. It's not ability. There's one thing, and that's trust in Him. The key to walking with God and having the victorious power of Jesus Christ in a life is not your performance, behavior, status, or ability. It's not that you try harder. It's that you trust Him more. And when you trust Him more, Jesus gets in on the misery, the sorrow, the sickness, the sin. And Jesus makes the difference. Trust in Him. And so that, that's the big question here today. That's the primary action plan. Will I trust Him Will I take another step? Can I give him more faith? Can I give him more trust? Do you trust what he said in John 3, 18? He who do not, does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the only begotten name of the Son of God. Do you believe that you stand before God, unworthy and guilty before him, and yet that God loves you and wants to forgive and save? If you do, there's great, great hope for you. In verse 28 again, according to your faith, let it be to you. If you will trust him because he's crucified, buried, and raised again, he will intervene and do something in your heart and life. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song, and as we do, we're going to invite you to come. And there will be staff members here waiting to help you, to give you any kind of spiritual help or any kind of spiritual counsel that you need. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. We'll stand and we'll begin to sing, and we'll give you the opportunity to cry out to him like these did and watch Jesus intervene in your life. Would you quickly stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Lord God, I praise you that in this room, there's enough competence in Jesus. There's enough strength. There's enough mercy. There's enough resolve. There's enough trust and faith in Him. And so, Father, I want to pray that you will make your Son's presence very strong here in these moments. I pray that our friends today would be convinced of their need. They would confess it and they would trust Him. Now again, we're going to sing a song. And as we do, we want to invite you to come. Some of you need to trust Him enough to call on Him and give your heart and life to Him. Some of you need to trust Him enough to become part of Beach Haven by baptism or transfer your letter or some other means. You come. You need to trust Him enough. Some of you have got some burdens and sorrows you need to entrust Him with. Maybe there's some other need, but we want to encourage you to come. He is here. He is willing. He is ready. We've prayed. We've gathered in His name. 
And now's the time to place our trust in Him. Let me finish my prayer and then we'll begin to sing. Oh God, I pray that you'd make our hearts right with you in these times. And I thank you that by faith, you're able to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow.